Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, marketing econometrics and ROI is a big theme for MI3's audience, and this one should put some zing and zap in the fuel tanks. The marketing profession is still wrestling with how it proves its impact on business and growth. Marketing and brand lingo often doesn't cut it with the C-suite and boards, although it is changing. So on the mics today is Brody Arnold, chair of iSelect, Endota Day Spa, Shaver Shop, and a bunch of other non-executive board roles. He's worked in senior roles with Goldman Sachs, Deloitte, and Westpac's private equity fund, and is a well-known investment figure among startups, including a personal investment in Mutiny, the Australian firm shaking up marketing econometrics with AI, automation, and cloud processing. Mutiny, by the way, is about to ambitiously launch into the US market and is putting just a little pressure on conventional econometrics that many of the big consulting firms deploy. So joining Brody on this important theme of how marketing can become more robust and credible inside organisations is Mutiny's co-founder, Henry Innes, and Trinity P3's CEO, Darren Woolley. Welcome to you all. I'm looking forward to this one. Henry, we might start with you for, uh, first before we get to the chairman, which is give us an update really on what's underway in the marketing sector on econometrics and uh, ROI measurement or MROI as you call it. Mutiny's war chest SaaS platform is now, I think, in a number of banks, consumer goods companies and beyond. Um, so just give us a sense, really, on the top line take and impact of what's happened in the, you know, the last 12 months or something, Henry, and, and welcome. Thanks, Paul. I think pretty much every company that's looking to prove out financial results in marketing properly is, is starting to move heavily into the econometric space. I think the real shift that we've seen marketers make, particularly with the changing macroeconomic environment, has been to move from media mix to market mix in particular and start to shift the attention and conversation away from just media to how is marketing as a, you know, across the four Ps starting to actually influence and and drive and how do we generate more data around that? I think, you know, if you look at banks, consumer goods, all these other types of companies, they all are operating not just in in an environment by themselves and with their own media mix, but with, you know, factors like inflation will change consumer patterns of behaviour. Um, factors like pricing and pricing in the market are increasingly variable, particularly as it becomes easier to change prices across supply chains and as cost of goods does go up and is variable as well. And so all of those elements are things marketers are looking to know how how do I respond? What decisions should, should I make? What decisions shouldn't I make? And, and what's important in that, in that mix and what's not? And I think market mix modelling is... I don't want to say demystifying, but that's kind of the theme is it's demystifying a lot of that and taking it taking it away and also giving marketers more control. And I think, you know, if you're looking in a boardroom context as well with, with things like market mix, as you're coming into recessionary environments in particular, where there are more uh, kind of robust views as to what to spend on and what not to spend on, these sorts of data points become more, not less important for a market to have. The why behind that is simple. Whoever can prove their worth and their budget's impact is going to be the one who keeps it in a recessionary environment. And so if you don't have these sorts of pieces of infrastructure in place, what we're seeing is it's very, very hard to maintain strong defense, particularly when, you know, you have things like cookies and things like that starting to collapse as well. So the 
more traditional, not necessarily more robust, but more traditional forms of measurement as well are under their own regulatory pressure as well. So I think that's driven probably our healthiest Q2 ever and um, and huh. driven probably larger uptake, I'd say, in the past two to three months than we have had in the past 12 months. Um, and that's partially a combination of us scaling as well. Henry, when did that sort of start to move, that move from media mix to market mix uh, modelling? And, and why is it happening? What's behind it? I'd say a big jolt to that system was probably COVID, actually, um, because what people wanted to know was what was the impact of COVID on my marketing and consumer sales. And that really posed that COVID was a nice, large external factor that made people go, well, how did that change things? And when you're asking the question of how did that change things, what was the impact to my sales of X that's not a media-specific factor, that's when people started to realise and really feel we weren't operating in in a in an environment where it where you could just kind of focus on media and not the market as well, I think that made it a real reality. And so I think, you know, COVID has kind of shifted the dial there. Then you've had a kind of huge inflationary event come very shortly afterwards. And and the the large inflationary event has kind of compounded that effect. So I'd say in a sense, the more frequent these quite visceral events happen, the more obvious the need has become to shift to market mix, not media mix. Right, so broaden it out. Now, obviously, it's all about data inputs when you start talking about whether it's media or market mix modelling. When you're going to these organisations and doing what you do, how is the quality of the data standing up? Is it there or is there a lot of work that you see needs to happen in the back end on some of these organisations before they get accurate kind of uh, modelling and predictive capabilities out of the, out of the, the magic machine that you've created? Well, I think most organizations are generating this data in some form. It's whether or not their current systems are set up to take it and structure it in a way that's recognizable to market mix. And we have a system called Convoy, which does that for us. I'll give you a worked example of that. If I have a weekly report on coming through on pricing and my and competitor pricing that's just stored in an Excel or CSV file that's repetitive and following the same data structure, we would take that report and that automatically generated report rather than the conventional MMM way, which is to get it into a nice, neat, MMM-friendly template. Probably, you know, everyone has to kind of fill in these prescribed sheets and things like that. We've tried to move away to that and really either move towards getting into a data warehouse or mapping an existing report that's automatically generated, um, that removes the data quality and, and, and quality of input data. I just think the second thing as well is that most organizations tend to have data that's too granular um, in format for a human to read, but machines are fine to read it. So if you're using human modelers, it's probably relatively difficult to execute with some of that highly granular data coming off APIs. If you're using a system that's kind of cloud-based and designed to process, you know, up to a billion rows of data pretty pretty comfortably, I'd say that's far less of an issue. So it's just the contrast. Like, I think okay. you have a data input issue if you're a consulting company. I don't think you do if you're a technology company. So, Brody, we got into the technical detail there uh, with a big mathematical brain. I think we might take it up a level to something that I might understand because Henry knows his stuff. But, um, you know, from your perspective, let's start with a view uh, of marketing from a board and executive leadership position and private equity investment, actually. We sometimes hear uh, marketing badged as an, an organization's colouring in department. 
that it lacks rigor, uh, proving an impact on business and is essentially a cost, really, not an investment that often, you know, we hear all the time it gets cut. It gets cut early when cost out programs are being deployed. I'm really interested in, in your take with your, you know, your long career and in, in, in sort of companies, running companies, investing in companies and so forth. What is your take on, what was your take on marketing maybe five to 10 years ago? How did you see it? And has it changed today? Uh, and welcome. Thanks for joining, Brady. Great to have you on. Thanks, Paul. And yeah, let's, uh, let's take it back to the macro level and, uh, yes. <laughs> and keep it in the, uh, the, the universe that I understand a little bit better. Um, if you look back five or 10 years, and, and this is not rocket science, um, you know, traditional media was really the, the go-to uh, for organisations, um, building brand, in, in the market and then, you know, traditional forms above above the line uh, was really where it was where it was at. at and what I used to always find most on, interesting, and as you said, articulately there, uh, it was really a cost line uh, without the accountability. Um, so what people looked at was very much, you know, eyeballs that you could get to your marketing, PR and, and coverage of, of, of possible readers. Then there was, um, you know, the sales team always telling me, you know, how much sales they, they drove themselves. Um, there was a little measurement around brand metrics. There was a little bit about how your brand was tracking in the market, but it was still fairly basic. And, and the amount of spend and the unaccountability of that did make the marketing department certainly an area that people had a mistrust of because they couldn't fully understand it, nor could they actually put a, uh, a return on that investment, you know, comfortably. And it was very much around building a brand. Um, you look at the TV ratings and how basic they are, even probably today in Australia, you know, you've got a couple of hundred thousand people pressing buttons on boxes to say that they're watching programs at certain times and how that all tracks and the radio ratings, et cetera. As a hardened investor through a couple of cycles, you tended to lose a bit of trust in it. You also had really good brands with a lot of muscle memory. So when it did come to a, t- a tighter part of the market, you could cut marketing spend quite quickly because people still remember your brands, like an Apple doesn't go away overnight, a BMW, et cetera. So it kind of was a good reaction to, to those environments. But the general boards didn't really understand marketing. Uh, the marketing guys had probably not an accountability. And when you added up what the sales guys were doing, what the PR uh, side of the business was doing and what the marketing size of the business was doing, the company should have been about eight times the size of what it really was. Right, uh, yes. And so that always left with this kind of funny feeling of, of, of mistrust. But wind the clock forward, you went from this um, traditional media to, you know, I guess it became the new age media today. And over the last five years or so, you've seen a real core focus, particularly with the private equity firms that have actually understood these metrics a lot better. And then as more channels have evolved and opened up, there's so many businesses got themselves hooked on Google or hooked on other forms. It's almost like a drug of dependency. And they actually forgot the traditional marketing media and forgot what building a brand was. But some of them got lucky because either the, you know, the social side of things was, you know, could be, you know, could move so quickly and the muscle memory of some of their brands was so strong that for a long period of time they got this huge outperformance in in marketing and the marketers could bring you know ROI into the play for the first time and you know you, you saw the, uh, the the you know the Googles and the Facebooks of this world you know help you measuring your return on your investment to the point where you know all of a sudden a dollar in brand was almost seen as not worth spending and you build your brand through waste it. waste yeah yeah it became a waste and, and what you're now seeing today is you know as Henry alluded to 
dramatic shifts and dynamics within each of the channels that you're looking at from a digital perspective and the costs often going out with these auctions and everything else that you're seeing to unobtainable levels. People are now looking back and going, hang on, I've lost the halo effect of my brand and I've lost all the, that, 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 that real value and, and, the, and the tradition and the customer base. I mean, if I could hear one more one more marketing guy talk about new customers versus existing customers. I mean, existing customers have got to be 85% of your business, 90% of your business, not chasing the new customer or finding the same customer 15 times in a year. So, you know, the whole, the whole conversation around the board has, has changed. And, and I think we'll talk a lot today about return on investment, uh, and, and how you view it. And as a, as a board member, even the, you know, guys with grayer hair than me, they understand, you know, how to measure these things. And then we all got sucked into this, last click attribute kind of model about, you know, hey, this is great. I'm glad you brought that up. As a chairman, I'm glad you brought that up, Brody, because it's another, <laughs> it's a vanity metric, if you like, isn't it, right? It, it absolutely is. And, and, you know, how you measure last last click and how, how you attribute all that type of stuff, I mean, it, it really is, it's an art, not a science. And I've seen it in 40 different versions. Um, at the end of the day, I, I want to measure the dollars I spend in each of the channels to get a return on investment so I can then make a marketing mix uh, so I can then choose the, the appropriate ways to spend my dollars, both for the long-term brand value uh, of an organisation, which is still absolutely critical, to re-engaging with our customers on a, on the cheapest practical way to then finding new customers and engaging them you know, back into our systems. And, and that's how we view marketing today. Private equity have been good. They, they got the metrics earlier. The one thing that I'm always careful and cautious with private equity is they're very short-term investors. And they want to invest and drive sales and top line growth. They don't necessarily want to invest for the long term future. And you're offering, offering, often seeing when they sell something into the markets that the brand is nowhere near as strong as you think it is. And it falls away. It's a really good point there, Brody. And I've had this argument put to me a few times and I'm really keen to hear your, your view on it. The argument goes that in, in some cases, investors, private equity, even institutional investors, and uh, boards are having it both ways on brand in that in, in one instance, they will look in an M&A scenario, they will look at brand value as part of their, you know, how much they're going to pay and, and how healthy the company is. But on the flip side, investing in brand is kind of uh, not a great thing or, or an intangible and an unaccountable thing. Is there some tension there or is it just a, a sort of a made up argument that's been put to me? No, I think there's tension there. I think you saw it too far on the brand side, swing too far in the um, you know the more performance based marketing side of things, and now you'll come back with a blend that you that you need both. Um, but it really comes down to your ability for boards to understand the return on the investment, both in the short term and the long term, and try to bring a predictability to that. And if you can get your finance department and your marketing department to understand left and right hand and how the money is spent, you'll end up with this really good conversation at a board level where everyone's on the same page. If the marketing guys try to show that, hey, this is the latest and greatest fuzzy thing and if we invest X in, t- in TikTok but I don't have the uh, the predictability to it just yet, you know, once again the uh, the finance team lose interest. So it's getting that balance right that's, you know, as cost of capital goes up, is going to be really critical to the, the next two to three years. Just out of interest, what, what sort of metrics and language do marketers need to use to engage finance and boards more effectively? What, what do you want to hear? What, it's, it's not kind of audience numbers. It's not brand equity uplift. What is the sort of language that works uh, in your environment? 
It's certainly the measurement is really important and being able to measure all the channels is really important. And, and the above the line channel and the brand channels are the harder ones to, to measure, but having some ability to, to measure those and then really bring a band to a return on investment. So if you're sitting at a table every year setting a budget, you're trying to allocate your capital to what you think is going to give you the biggest you know, the biggest return in the short and medium and, and long term. So you, know, you want to see the, the, the return on investment and then the accuracy around the predictions three, six, nine, 12 months later, which is very much what we need to be able to get our heads around, that people actually, the performance is at the level. I mean, if I hear one more time, oh, our performance isn't where we thought it was going to be because the costs went up or that all of a sudden Google have, you know, done this or changed an algorithm or, 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 or Facebook has, has moved things to left or right, you know, those things need to be considered up front and, and built in before you, you, you dive so deep down a hole that it takes you 12 months to, to pull yourself back out. Yeah. And, and doing that fast and doing that regularly is what's missing. So when I've seen all these large consulting firms do it, they're very good, but it's very complex it's difficult to get the reports and the information. So internally in the organisation, only really the CMOs get the information. And then, um, you know, it's looking backwards, not forwards as well. So they're the challenges that we face. Henry, I'm just interested on that one in terms of language and metrics. Uh, are you seeing the, the change when, when CMOs get a hold of, uh, of data that gives them some harder evidence on things? Are they changing the language and is it working with finance? I mean, we've talked about this before, but what's your take? Well, I, I mean... One of the first things that we try to get marketers to do practically is to drive a monthly finance report around marketing. So shifting the language narrative from from reach to revenue and revenue delivered. Um, there's a couple of whys to that. Uh, the whys are really like you get people used to understanding marketing as something that is delivering revenue. And if you're merchandising that frequently, people understand that if you're cutting a marketing budget, you're likely to be cutting a revenue line item as well. So you start to build those sorts of relationships internally within an organization. But I mean, I we we tend to think that and what we tend to see is that that frequency, you know, quarterly or monthly tends to be the best way to execute that because it builds some regularity, some patterns and things like that. And I don't want to say it's merchandising, but to a degree it is. It's building the associations and almost building a brand of marketing internally to drive a very finance-led point of view back to it. Um, We strongly encourage using and leveraging econometric data to kind of put those narratives together and to really present marketing as a as a almost a delivery mechanism for revenue in both the long and the short term, rather than presenting marketing as something that potentially de- delivers revenue. By building those associations really tightly and also building that predictability of reporting, it tends to allow people to make more considered judgments. It also means that people are a lot more hesitant to to look at budgets differently because, you know, they have that association of revenue, revenue and marketing spend. Brody, you mentioned, um, you sort of touched on it a little bit about how budgets get allocated and, you know, marketing's up against other options for cost of capital and, and so forth. What is the process of how uh, and how can they influence that that budget allocation that goes on, you know, probably six, eight, 12 months out of, of when the numbers land? Yeah, so it's certainly putting yourself in the eyes of how the board looks and considers those decisions. Um, so capital allocation, you know, is really critical for, for a board's role in terms of how do they drive the best outcome for the business. And um, marketers have traditionally been a little bit off the pace and, and every year 
you know, the finance guys run the budgets and the marketing guys can't speak the lingo to be able to say to them, hey, if we spend X amount of dollars in these areas here, this is what we think the uh, the return's going to be. And ultimately, and this is how we're confident in, in those numbers and why we're willing to stand behind them. And, and that's what it comes down to, you know, when you are allocating capital, you, you really want to know the, the depth of, um, you know, knowledge and information around the table and, and who do you who do you trust? So if you've got an independent source that, that can show and predict how the performance of your marketing is going to go, your ability to then come back with a, you know, a, a mix that is believable and credible at a board level is going to greatly help you as a, as a CMO. And it's also going to under, help the CFOs or the finance team understand what, what, what you mean because they're looking at numbers, numbers and numbers, not necessarily what, what you're looking at from a marketing perspective. So so that's you know we'll get on to mutiny a little bit later, but that's certainly why this part of the this part of the market intrigues me, and I'm looking forward to hearing Darren talk a bit more about you know on the buy side of, of media how you can influence how you can influence that from a CMO's perspective rather than being a price taker, using the economics to be a, a price maker and to be able to justify some of those decisions and 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 argue your way through as many of these channels as you possibly can. Brady, you probably uh, have not noticed this, but I'm not on a board, so I'm going to ask you some questions around just the conversation that goes on uh, at board level. You hear a lot from um, about digital transformation, customer experience, and that seems to be being led board C-suite level, like the customer. So the conversation around customer versus conversation around marketing, my guess is that there's more conversation around customer and what you do, what companies do with that than marketing. But am I, am I off the beat here or, or on both? No, certainly the the customer is probably, you know, let's look at things from the eyes of the customer. You know, what are we doing to influence the customer's decisions on the way through? And I think I alluded a bit earlier. So when I look at customer, I break customer down into different categories. I love existing customers, understanding the the you know, the patterns of those existing customers, what they can bring to the table and how much money I can spend on that existing customer base versus growing new customers on the way through and then even nurturing customers. So like a business that I'm involved with called Indota, you know, we're trying to expand the life cycle of our customer from, you know, people in their mid, low to mid-30s through to 50 or 60. How do we get that people to a younger age and that customer environment? That's brand. So it's a real mix around all this, but, but customer numbers is important. The cost of acquisition of customers has become the kind of catchphrase um, for a lot of boards. And it seems to be rising, right? <laughs> it's rising all the time at the moment. Yeah, certainly customer acquisition costs through digital channels. Acquisition, yeah. Has risen a huge amount. And now, so people are also talking about what's a lifetime value of a customer. Um, so some of those ratios, like <laughs> you know, we don't want to bring too many three-letter words into it, but CAC to LTV and things like that, that's that's something that that's very much on the board's horizon, which then helps, comes back to you know, the return on investment of each of these different channels, loyalty, brand, marketing, you know, different ch- channels through the marketing, et cetera. So, so those, those conversations are starting to get a lot of airtime at the boardroom table and what people, because what people are seeing is they didn't really understand that the risks and the cliff risks through different channels and the commitment you make through those channels. And, and I now, I come back to Google and Facebook a lot because they are probably the early market leaders in these channels and they're the hardest ones to influence the uh, the cost of your marketing spend because it's a, it's an open market in, in much of this um, and they can change algorithms around to kind of <laughs> impact your ability to deliver and 
you know, once again, having live information so you can assess each of those markets so you can make faster, quicker trend, um, decisions is so critical. And boards are over probably up to about three years ago, they'd get the marketing report, they'd probably look at the quarterly report from marketing, they'd look at you know, things that have gone well, things that have gone poorly, and pretty much maybe check brand tracking and how your brand's going and then put it back down again. Whereas today they're ripping it, they're ripping it apart and asking questions that are much more sophisticated on, um, you know, why did that channel perform that way? Why has our cost of acquisition per customer gone up? What can we do to drive a lifetime value of the customer? What experience do we need to give them to maintain their loyalty, et cetera? So it's just changing. I mean, there's a really interesting anecdote, which I'm sure you'll be across with in your role at iSelect, but I was talking to, we'll keep it nameless, but I was talking to someone who was, you know, trying to find new customers in, in and around an insurance category. And you talk about lifetime value, and it was literally in the cost of search to acquire a new, just a new, you know, uh, an inquiry was something like eight or $900. They were, they, that was how high it was going to the point where the lifetime value became, it sort of went negative. And so this whole, this whole conversation, or what do we do now? I'm sure you sort of you see a bit of that, do you? Yeah, health insurance and life insurance in particular have very high customer acquisition costs. And it was interesting, if I look at iSelect a decade ago, when comparison first came on, you know, they thought they were super clever. They thought they had all the algorithms in the world. It, it was just it was just the new thing. Everyone wanted to understand, are they paying too much or they're not paying too much? Whereas today, comparison's almost the norm. And I, I remember the days, and then you, you do a clever above-the-line campaign, pretty funny, you know, some guy vacuuming his floors in a, in a uh, maid's outfit or something like that, and you actually had to turn the tap off on your lead tanks because that much would flow through to these things. Right. Whereas today, if you do an above-the-line spend, you almost get zero reaction. And, and so it's interesting to see how you've had to shift your model away from that, you know, that, that traditional media back to the digital media. And then as you've gone deeper into the digital media, all we've done is trained all the insurance companies and all the uh, electricity companies, et cetera, to use the digital channels. So now there's more competition back in those channels. So you've now got to find the next way of doing things or, or alternative, as I say to my guys, you've dealt with 12 million customers in the last five years. What, what do they reckon? You've already got their contact details. You know? Right, right. Why not engage them? Um, not interesting. So uh, around econometrics and mutiny, though, Brody, you, you have uh, invested in mutiny. Why did you do that? And what's the upside for the business, you think, with your very big picture view on what's going on you know, across the business environment? Yeah, so obviously mutiny feels a really important part of the market. And I looked at these channels previously and you know, you've either, the people that did it well used large consulting firms to do it well. As I said previously, it was quite expensive and um always used to look in the past. Then some people built their own teams internally and those teams, so I've had three businesses now where I've got a business intelligent resource that sits in, in, in finance and a business intelligence resource that sits in marketing, both looking at the same set of numbers and coming back to me with different views. And so I was like, uh, you know, because everyone just wants to, you know, the marketing guys are the experts are telling you what a great job they're doing. So <laughs> with Mutiny, what did I like? I like that it's going to be product-led. I think that's really, really important. Consulting-led projects, as I just alluded to, with business intelligence guys internally, they're open to interpretation, they're slow, they're expensive, and they're, they're looking back in, in, in history. The ability, as you said before, to ingest the data 
and, and Henry was talking about the millions and millions of different bytes of, of data, you can build these models, but they're so cumbersome to actually have, you know, an algorithm, et cetera, running that looks at these things all the time and, and learns every single day, um, not only just about the general marketing world, but about your specific company was, was really important to me. And then Henry and I had this good conversation one afternoon. I said, mate, I think you're a genius. You're a fantastic consultant. Did you just say that publicly, Brody? Uh, no, no. Now we're in trouble. Ge- every genius has a flaw. <laughs> yes, um, right. <laughs> just to bring it back to a good level, Paul. Yeah, thank um, you. But the ability for this to become self-serve and the ability for this to be a self-service product is where I see this market going in years to come because right now you just have to look at the logos of a lot of these firms. They're, they're very large logos. They've got huge marketing budgets. Your TAM or your addressable market is not going to be large enough because you're right out of companies that spend 20 million above. So it's going to move this down into a smaller, cheaper, faster, more affordable product-led business that I just think Newton is quite a way ahead of anything else I've certainly seen in the Asian region. And as you said before, we're just going to test the US a little bit more here. But from the companies we've spoken to so far that have large parts of their business in Australia and the US, it's still if you can solve self-service and you can keep this product-led business going, and every marketing department gets used to using it and every finance department gets used to using it. It's a very sticky, stable, really strong, um, you know, what, I, what we call a SaaS revenue stream coming up. And that's, uh, that's what excited me about Mutiny. Just fascinated by, you know, let's take iSelect, for instance, or you, firstly, in Dota, you said, you know, trying to broaden your customer base uh, requires brand investment. With iSelect, you know, if I recall, you know, in recent years or previous years, uh, it's been a very performance-led business. Like you are down on that tactical level when people are searching for a certain product, you want them to come and, and choose you. So where with such a performance-orientated business where you are literally about trying to bring leads into, you know, on-sell some product, where does brand fit in for iSelect? And has that changed? Is, is the business and the perspective of the board uh, and the executive team changed on on brand versus performance, or is it really a performance based business? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, without going into too much gory detail, we we got a brand campaign horribly wrong back in two thousand eighteen. Um, we really switched the uh, the way we looked at brand, and it kind of forced us in a way to move away from brand back into performance. Now, I think I alluded to before muscle memory in a business like I Select that had been spending 50 million bucks a year on, on brand was, was, was incredible. And, and so we kind of got away with it for a period of time. But you kind of, what you saw is the performance-led marketing go really well, very predictable for a while, and then small changes in, you know, prices and auctions, small changes in algorithms, small changes in, you know, the SEO or the free leads that we all used to get slowly but surely took it down a, you know, a tougher path and we always ran that business for profitability, not for market share. And so we were competing against competitors that were going for market share. And it took us down this, this dangerous path. And, and what we probably realised um, was that we'd underinvested in brand, which uh, I think when I was talking about some examples earlier, we kind of went from this you know old media brand building, brand building, brand building to this new, this new media world of, of performance-driven marketing, performance-driven marketing, and then this you start seeing customer come into it and the loyalty programs and everyone trying to get more off their existing customers. At the end of the day, it's all important. And I think in 20 years' time, we'll still be putting plenty of ads on television. We'll still see billboards. We'll still see all these other channels as being really critical. But it's how you measure them and how you react to each of those channels that will give us ultimately the best performance. 
Henry, just on that, I'm coming to Darren in one second because he's got some good um, good thoughts on some things. But Henry, just in terms of that, at a macro level, on what you're seeing in the media part of the uh, media mix modeling or of market mix modeling, but the media bit, performance and brand. Do you have any? Do you see any patterns, trends come out on that top line in terms of the allocation? I mean, I'm not sure it's an allocate. We look at it from an allocation perspective. I mean. I personally hate the words brand and performance, to be honest with you, because it implies that brand doesn't perform, um, which my experience has been probably slightly different in the sense that brand ads might be hard to measure, but they certainly do deliver solid sales volume to a a degree as well, particularly over a longer period of time if you're not just looking at the sale in that moment. So I think, you know, this whole idea of brand versus performance, it's a bit of a furphy in allocation. I think what we need to just, the better distinguishing thing is, you know, I talk about behavioral targeting versus not behaviorally targeted spend versus non-behaviorally targeted spend. The reason I All right, so what do you mean by that? Well, so spend that's, you know, behaviorally targeted is spend that's targeted one-to-one to to a specific user who is behaving in a specific way because you believe they might be ready for a sale. That's a behaviorally targeted spend versus non-behaviorally targeted spend is spend that you're, where you're putting a message out there for all people to consider. Um, the reason I make those distinctions is because the effectiveness of your behaviorally targeted spend is typically heavily impacted by your non-behaviorally targeted spend. So I don't look at it as 60-40. I look at it as as kind of the 40 is a bit dependent on the 60, if that makes sense. So right, yep, it's yep. not really about the allocation so much as it's about measuring how the top is going and then measuring what part, how the mix works together to achieve an outcome. And I'll give you a really clear example of that. We see in Warchest halo effects very clearly between between television, online video, and BVOD and search performance. Switch off those sorts of video channels and you might see search performance halve. Why? Because you've got less kind of focused inbound traffic. It's harder to win the customer and so on. Um, And it's it's harder to retain your existing because they don't remember you and things like that. Versus, hmm. So I'm not sure, like, it's a slightly convoluted answer to your question, but what we kind of look at is we look at marketing as, a, as an ecosystem of, of dependencies and how are, these in, how are these different inputs contributing to an overall outcome? Because, you know, it's not one sale to one channel, it's multiple channels contributing to multiple to, to an overall sales uplift. And that if you look at it that way, okay. to Brody's point, it's about what is the optimum mix to achieve the optimum sales and revenue outcome. And in that kind of context, I think, you know, you plan for figuring out how does the ecosystem work together and analysing that and analysing that through sales compositions and things like that rather than looking at brand or performance. It's not it's not brand or performance and whether or not you should allocate to brand or performance. It's how do brand and performance work together. It's not an or, it's an and. Yep. It's, it's, no, I understand. And I guess my uh, question is coming from a, a context of if you think about how I think about performance and I could be wayward is it's sort of a, you know, it's a hard call to action, a hard immediate call to action for someone to do something. And I guess that's where I was coming from, whether it's a buy or a, or what have an inquiry. But um, we can put that aside because we've got bigger conversations to have on, on this particular uh, recording. Um, Darren, I'm really interested to get your perspective. You've got, you've got a very different perspective uh, altogether, really, and that's about procurement. Now, you deal with these uh, these teams quite a lot. How does what you hear from Brody and Henry 
align with what you're seeing from those, you know, those number crunching, pencil sharpening gatekeepers, which are charged with buying stuff. Oh, Paul. And Brody's Paul, got a few Paul. in his companies too, by the way. Welcome, Darren, <laughs> Paul, by the way. you haven't changed. No, I haven't. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. And look, you know, this is great news for procurement because you have to remember 20 years ago, procurement is much closer aligned to the CFO than many marketers are. Okay, so 20 years ago, the CFO sent procurement into investigate the marketing budget because they were absolutely assured that there was waste in there. So they sent procurement in to eliminate waste. That's 20 years ago. About 10 years ago, suddenly Google's going around saying last click attribution, you know, because marketers were saying we're an investment. Well, they'd say they're an investment in company growth, but then they'd talk about spending the budget and allocating the budget. Budget's a cost. It's an allocated cost to be spent. If you're an investment, you need to talk about it and think about it differently. And suddenly marketers and their teams were picking up on last click attribution and the the procurement people were going, okay, well then spend more on that, you know, because that seems to be getting results, except it was at the expense of long-term growth. Five years ago, the um, marketing industry was talking about we need to get this balance right. We need long-term growth through brand building and we need short-term sales generation. Now, it's interesting because uh, three or four years ago, the WFA, the World Federation of Advertisers, released a paper called Project Spring, which was all based on marketing procurement moving away from cost reduction into value creation except it wasn't particularly deep on how to actually achieve that because in most cases, marketers were still not able to connect the investment with the the return on investment. You know, it's all very well to talk about return on marketing investment, but the next question is, well, prove it. And so, you know, systems like media mix modelling or marketing mix modelling or or the, uh, the, the war chest mutiny product starts getting a connection between that investment and what are you doing to actually drive growth? Because, you know, some of these attribution models that we've had in the past were pretty rubbery and so were quickly dismissed by the types of people that we see running the financial departments of major publicly listed companies. Well, interesting. And so do you detect uh, any shift now in what how procurement is thinking and approaching marketing and, and the broader investment around that? I think you said there's sort of some early signals somewhere in the world that's changing. No, look, it's absolutely changing overseas. We're currently got uh, projects in North America and Europe with marketing teams who are wanting to work through what are the best ways that they can actually help marketing drive growth. What ways can procurement actually facilitate the marketing function and prove the outcomes. This is conversations with the procurement team. We're being engaged by procurement teams who have a budget to do this. Now, it's really interesting because it's flipping the whole relationship from a cost controller into a commercial advisor, someone that can actually help marketing translate their the data that they have and the results and the way they talk about it so that it actually resonates with the CFO. I mean, to Brody's point, you know, it's interesting how many marketers bid for their budget based on what they're going to do rather than necessarily what the results will be. And, and, you know, one of the best financial terms I think that marketers should learn is IRR. Brody, you'd know what that is. Internal rate of return is the way you actually justify getting your budget because there's a cost of money in any business 
And if you're wanting money, you've got to be able to show that you're going to multiply that more than the cost. And this, these are the types of conversations that marketers are often busy doing marketing and not able to necessarily translate that into the conversation with the C-suite, the rest of the C-suite, that's about growth factors. And that's where procurement, you know, with models like this, becomes a great commercial partner to help with the translation of that, getting the rigour around the data. I mean, I can imagine if there's CMOs listening to this and they're thinking we need to embrace this type of you know, predictive uh, modelling and measurement, they should be talking to their procurement teams because they will be able to build the business case to get the funding to, to be able to do this. Mm. Well, apart from anything else, it's interesting you talk about that. I've heard some descriptions, uh, in, and I have a caveat that Henry's told me that I shouldn't be thinking into performance and brand, but let's just go there for a moment. Excuse me, Henry, which is say something like performance marketing should be sort of seen and talked about as current cash flows. Brand investment, brand marketing should be seen as future cash flows, and that's sort of an almost a tweak on how marketers talk, but it gets closer to, I don't know, does it get closer to what you want to hear, Brody, if the proof point's there, I guess is the is the point on that. Is that a, a concept that you are in marginally uh, credible? Yeah, look, I think a lot of the topics have been around that you know, we all understood brand and could never quite measure it, but we saw the importance of it. And then performance became the latest and greatest. And, and what you're realising now is you've got to do both. You, you've, you've really got to, and I, I kind of bring the customer and the existing customers into that equation as well. You know, there, there's a lot of different ways of, of getting to a sale. But, you know, what I liked about Mutiny was, and it's not, as I said before, it's not perfect measuring above the line investment. It's as close as I've seen to doing a really good job of it to at least give people the structure to say, well, hang on, here's a, you know, a medium to long-term investment that we've just got to have for the business and the organisation, which, you know, will give us a return in the short term, but it will give us a better return in the long and medium term. Uh, and that creates, you know, trust. It creates uh, efficacy amongst the customer, customer base, etc. But here's another piece of the marketing pie which you've got to be able to measure to justify. And that's the really dynamic piece, which is what we're talking about in the shorter term. But, you know, you've got to do both. You've got to do, you've got to do everything, you know, and otherwise you'll, you can have short-term success with, with certain parts of the, uh, the pie, but you won't have a long-term strong business in, in my view. So to what Henry said before. Darren, I'm really interested, you know, when you talk of having these conversations with procurement who are trying to optimise investment in, in media and marketing, where do you go? Where are they going to do this? What are they doing to get to that point? Okay. So at the moment, uh, for most marketers, their experience with procurement is they come in and negotiate a contract every three years, or they get involved in running a tender process to select a new agency or something like that, Paul. But procurement people have an analytical skill set that is complementary to the way marketing works. And increasingly, in a data world where there's all these metrics, they can then play the role of actually helping justify budgets to help uh, keep focused on strategically what's the work. You know, have you ever met a marketer, because I haven't, that ha one that has enough marketing budget? I've never yet to date had a marketer say to me, I've got way too much money, I don't know what to do with it. And one of the problems is because they feel like they have to do everything, every new channel that pops up, you know, oh, I've got to be on TikTok, I've got to be on this, I've got to be on that. And yet their budgets have remained relatively the same because they're unable 
to conclusively prove that it is an investment that's driving growth. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what does procurement do? If they change from being a cost controller into a commercial advisor, they can sit down with marketing and work out what's the data we need to be able to justify, first of all, what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. What's actually working for you and what isn't? And then going to the business and saying, if we invest more in this and we need this amount of money, then getting that budget. And that's what's happening. You're seeing that happen now in these, these, these contracts you're seeing come through. Yeah, we're getting engaged by procurement to actually work with the marketing team and procurement to identify where does procurement have the skill sets to help create value for marketing. And that's why, you know, tools like this, you know, a a lot of marketers have been burnt in the past, Paul, by going down this path, especially uh, uh, media uh, mix modelling. Right. You know, which was largely offered by a lot of media agencies. And it was based on maybe half a dozen different data sources. Often, you know, things like Roy Morgan was one of them. And then they'd come up and what did it tell you? Oh, you need to spend more on media. Right. Right. You know, that they really tools that were developed. You know, we're talking here and, and, you know, especially you hear about in the US where they're using hundreds, literally hundreds of sources of data, which to Henry's point earlier, no amount of people sitting there with their Excel spreadsheets crunching through it is going to come up with any sort of insight. Most of the work is done to uh, Brody's point is retrospective. It's justifying what happened in the past. What this seems to me to be opening an opportunity for getting real time input into what you should be doing today, tomorrow, and next week to justify, you know, to grow the business and then give you the results back to show that it's actually working. And that's something that's really exciting to procurement because, you know, the only reason they cut costs is because it was a cost. If it's actually a proven investment, then they've got a very good mandate to actually then help to invest in it to drive that growth. Got it. So, Brody, I'm going to put you on the spot with a question. Um, let's say procurement, sales, finance and marketing walks into a pub and you happen to be there and they're all trying to tell you something. Which one do you believe most? Who has the most credibility? <laughs> I like this question. Well, to be fair, your procurement always are a bit black hat and they take a really dim and hard view of what the numbers really look like. So you, you tend to listen to them in the first instance. Then as you have a couple more drinks, <laughs> yes. you, you, you want to start talking to your sales guys. And then at the end of the night, you end up with your marketing team <laughs> and, and they make you feel much better about the world and where, where, where you're heading all over again. So <laughs> it does evolve as the evening wears on, if that's a fair answer. But yeah, yeah procurement well certainly, they probably talk my language to start with, but you know, I think they all have a good role. And, and the more informed we can get each of those areas and the the, yeah, the more credible they, they can be in their conversations, then it's a much, much better conversation. It's interesting because, you know, this last click attribution in the in North America, we were working with a client who, when their sales were not as uh, good as they were hoping they'd be, would take money, Paul, out of their media budget and actually pay for door to door salespeople because that had a four times return on investment, Hmm. having someone go and knock on the door. Now, this is the 21st century. And to be able to justify a return on marketing investment, they were using something that feels like it was out the, out of the 1950s. 
It's a classic. Ironically, though, we even see now, you know, probably because there's not much of it, direct mail, the old direct mail stuff is working. Even Google's using direct mail because we don't get much of it anymore, so we pay attention when it does land. It's it's ironic that Henry's looking at me going, what? And now, we're on to you now, Henry, which is we're going to wrap this up very shortly. Darren talked about uh, the US. Europe mutiny is about to go into the US, expand into the US. What are you thinking doing that? That's a monster of a market, and, and why? Well, I think the first thing to say is, it's an experiment, not a surety, right? We're trying to learn about the market, enter the market in a sensible and fairly disciplined way um, in order to understand what war chest looks like um, in the context of, you know, three to five US customers. So what we want to understand is... Probably pretty big ones, though, I would imagine. <laughs> well, you'd certainly you'd certainly assume that. But, um, but I think, like, mm. the important thing for us... Is more to test the pattern of behavior, the patterns of behaviour that were held true for us in Australia, and the assumptions that we hold true in Australia work well in the US market as well. We think what we're doing is a universal, universally painful problem. So I think that you know, for us, it's less about the market and more making sure that that translates well, and that we still understand that customer problem, which we believe we do, and testing those assumptions really well. So I think you know, we think of it less from less from the lens of entering a new geographic market as, you know, a traditional consulting group would and things like that, and more in the sense of where are the big places where we can take this pain away for customers and where are the stages at which we can take away for customers. And we believe that US customers are experiencing this tenfold um, due to their scale. So so mm. I suppose it's it's we probably are constructing it in a slightly different way for, in terms of our perspective um, and as to our why. Um, I also just think as well we're lucky in the sense that we have a tremendous uh, leader that can kind of go over there in John and you know and we we're, we're really really hopeful that 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 kind of um, investment in people and things like that will will translate to a really great, great result. But I think um, yeah for us it's. As I keep saying to everybody in the business, focus on the customer problems, focus on solving the customer problems and taking the pain away, and markets will follow. You know, if we universally focus on customer pain, customer problems, and solving the customer problems, you know, um, entering a market should be should be far easier. I mean, you look at businesses like a, a Canva or an Atlassian, they're Australian businesses solving really hard and painful problems that are able to exist anywhere in the world. And we believe that with the self-serve model, we can facilitate the same level of engagement, the same taking away of marketers' pain in this case as uh, Canva and Atlassian did in project management and design. Well, some of us are watching with great interest, Henry. So, uh, look, well, I've held you guys um, too long on the mic, so we'll just wrap this up. Uh, probably one watch out or one piece of counsel for marketers, exec leadership teams and, and um, marketing return on investment uh, for the next 12, 6, 12 months. I might start with, with you, Darren. Yeah, look, um, since 2007, 2008, marketing budgets have been under pressure and that's not going to change. So anything a marketer can do to be able to have a conversation about why they are truly an investment and prove that they're an investment has to be a positive. Otherwise, you're going to have that constant pressure. You turn it around and become an investment, 
and and one that people are listening to, and it completely changes the game for marketing within the organisation. Are you buying the, uh, the the war chest model and what they're doing? I mean, you're asked to find solutions for big brands. It, you know, what do you make of this stuff? And, you know, in, in one minute. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's got a lot of really positive attributes. One of them is about the speed to getting it set up. The other is that it becomes a predictive model and an advisory model, whereas so many of the others we look at is are very retrospective. So that has to be a positive. Marketers have to choose the one that's best for them. But I think uh, definitely that uh, Warchest and and this uh, solution by Mutiny would have to be part of the consideration list. Brody, one piece of counsel for, you know, as as we wind up here for the next six to 12 months on on all this. Yeah, look, I think you've got to get closer to your your numbers. You've got to be able to present credible cases of of return on investment or IRR, whichever one you, you, you want to look at. And if you don't have credible sources of information uh, available internally or it's too complex, then you do need to look for a product or a consultant that can help you with this. And capital allocation has always been real. It's about to get a whole lot more real uh, in the next two, two to three years. And you know, for me, that's mm. that's critical. I've got one sentiment question on that, which is, you know, the next year. So what's a, a chairman and a board director looking at in the next 12 months and thinking what it's crunch time big crunch or we don't you, where are you sitting right now yeah you're preparing for a big crunch i've prepared the last couple of years for a big crunch so our balance sheets are as strong as possible your ability to measure and understand what levers you've got to pull both to drive the top line but also to make sure your profitability is very real and i'm waiting for the opportunities to evolve and i still think they're 12 to 24 months away particularly buying businesses People still have this, you know, overloaded view of the real value of the of, of the businesses and the multiples they trade on, and it's going to take a while for that to hit the market and the, and the pain. You know, people, you know, if you look at an individual, everyone's actually kind of well off at the moment, right? Uh, but the pain's come, the pain's coming, and so you know, I think you're going to really see the good operators and the people that understand their numbers and the return on the investment have a really really strong five years, mm. um, and anyone who doesn't or whose business model isn't strong enough, it's going to have a problem. Um, I'm watching Brody Arnold now for when when the time is to pounce. Um, Henry Innes, final thoughts? The biggest watch out to the market for me is in times of economic change and uncertainty, the worst thing you can do is have media mixed modelling. The best thing you can do is have market mixed modelling. So I'd just say that's mm. probably the distinction I would be very, very close to. It's a punchy point and it's quite short, Henry, so well done. And I've, and it landed on me. I get that point. So Henry Innes, Brody Arnold, Darren Woolley, great conversation. Thanks for joining. Stay safe and I'm watching for Crunch. Talk soon. Thanks, guys. Cheers. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.